views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one. It's the Space Show with Dr. David Livingston. Broadcasting to seven continents. Consistently bringing you quality news and interviews with the best and brightest minds in the new space economy. Here is the founder and host of the Space Show. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Sunday Space Show. I'm your host, David Livingston, and uh, thank you for tuning in, and I apologize for the delay. So uh, we have a major sound issue feeding into the sound card of the computer that streams our, our program. We're bypassing that. And I'm not sure how clear you're going to hear the program, and I'm not sure how loud you're going to hear it. But it is streaming, and uh, I all I can do is, is hope that it will work. And uh, I have been, as some of you who tuned in early, uh, know that I've been talking to Tom, who is our, uh, our uh, streaming guy, our, our computer, to try to uh, get this thing back on the, on the road. I'm not sure when we will be able to uh, get it fixed, but uh, as long as this works and I can bypass some of the systems, then uh, we will be okay. So um, I'm going to go straight to uh, uh, our program. So um, today we do have Dr. Ben Arroyo back with us, uh, and he is going to answer your engineering questions and Again, I, I hope your audio is clear enough and loud enough that you can hear it. Our toll-free number is 866-687-7223. And you can email us at drspace at thespaceshow.com. If you want to call in or give me email reports on the quality of the audio, I would appreciate that. Uh, I'm, I'm just not sure what you are hearing I am copying it off of the live feed, and it looks like it's pretty low levels of audio to me. Uh, but uh, ho- hopefully our recordings will be there, and at least we can uh, archive the program. So uh, I'm going to be optimistic. Uh, so um, our newsletters go out tomorrow, and if you want to uh, make sure you receive them, make sure I have your email address. That always helps because it goes out electronically. Remember, everything we do is archived. We have a store, and then um, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, and we do ask for your support. Uh, we do have these dilemmas that come up. It, it is technology. The, the show is run by quite a few different computers and a rack of equipment on a board, and sometimes things go haywire, although this worked perfectly for our Friday show. All of a sudden, for some reason, it's not deciding to work uh, correctly today. Anyway, um, so you can um, you know listen right off of our website, and you can also listen to any of the podcasting things that we have, and, of course, you can download our programs. 
we are a 501c3 non-profit. We need your support. There's a PayPal button in the upper right corner of our homepage. That's the easiest way to support us. If you want to use Zelle, which is a great way to support us, uh, then that's fine. And you use email address drspace at thespaceshow.com. Um, also, if you want to mail a check to us, it is uh, going to Las Vegas. It is made payable to One Giant Leap Foundation, and you will see the address on the PayPal button. So, listeners, I'm going to skip everything else. Uh, I'm even going to skip our sponsorship. Well, I won't skip the shout-outs. Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix Space in Luxembourg, the National Space Society, Celestis, Astrox Corporation, Dr. Chaim Benaroya, who is our guest today, the Space Foundation, and John Jossie's terrific blog, Space Settlement Progress. And this is Ask the Engineer. We've never done this before, although you always ask Dr. Benaroya questions. But he really doesn't have a prepared set of uh, topics or comments. And what we uh, want you to do is call in and uh, ask questions and they can be about space or the moon or anything engineering related or anything related we do try to avoid partisan politics so keep keep that to yourself we don't want to go down political rabbit holes and uh, we hope you'll call us so for those of you that do want to call us it is 866-687-7223 for those of you that want to continue using email it is Dr. Space at the Space Show.com. Uh, Heim is an engineer at uh, Rutgers University. He has written great books and spoken. He has uh, spoken at conferences on lunar habitats, how to uh, live on the moon, and topics like that. He's been talking and doing that work for a couple of decades now. And um, you can look up his bio. It's on our website at the Space Show.com. But uh, I'm going to talk to him rather than uh, read about him. And hopefully your audio is coming through okay and that this bypass will work until we can get the program fixed. One more thing, all of my safeguards are bypassed. So I can't cut the show if you say something that needs to be deleted. I can't do it. It's going to be broadcast. If Haim and I want to have a private conversation and say this, that, or whatever about this person or that person or politics or something, you would hear it. So I have asked Heim to say nothing that he doesn't want broadcast, and then I can call him on my cell phone after the show, uh, and we can have a normal conversation. But everything that is said is going to be broadcast and re- and recorded because we are bypassing all of the systems that safeguard that and allow me to delete comments. So, Heim, welcome to the jury-rigged space show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, David. Um, it seems like it's, uh, it's engineering all the way. It, it is, and Tom is a, is a great broadcast engineer, and the reason he doesn't have a lot of time to do things for us is because he somehow got into the niche of uh, being a problem solver for TV stations. And he, go, oh. he goes all over the country uh, working on TV stations, and he's leaving Fresno today for another round of TV station emergency. And the other thing about Tom is 
This guy has no damn fear of height. And he climbs the towers. So, yeah, he's got a safety harness on. But there it used to be the tallest tower in, I'm thinking, I know it's North America, but maybe it was a bigger territory than that in North Dakota. And he sometimes goes to North Dakota for some TV stations. And he has climbed that damn tower to make repairs up at the top of it. And oh, it, doesn't, it doesn't bother him a bit. I cannot believe that, that he can do that. Now, some of the towers have elevators, so you can elevate her partially up. But then you you got to do the, the last part. Like if you had to climb the tower part on top of the Empire State Building, you can get there on an elevator, but then you've got to climb the last several hundred feet on a tower. He does that kind of stuff, and it doesn't bother him a bit. So, yeah, I'm not a fan of heights either. So, you know, I... I, I have trouble on a six-foot stepladder, so, <laughs> so uh, anyway, welcome to the show, and, and I hope people will call you. you. Listeners, you can even play Stump the Engineer if you want and, and see if you can stump Dr. Benaroya. But, um, I'm sure I'm sure I can be stumped. So we're, we're waiting for phone calls because, again, he, he doesn't – well, there's a call. Let's see how all of this works. Uh, good afternoon, caller. Welcome to uh, the program today, and uh, who are you, where are you, and thank you for calling. This is Peter from Long Island. Can you I, hear me? Yeah, I hear you perfectly. I hope you guys can hear me, given yeah, uh, my you, equipment problem. Yeah, you're coming through perfectly good on the web. So okay, that's well, that's good. not an issue at all. My view meters um, are, non, are not hardly noticeable, so I'm glad to hear that. Got it. So before I ask uh, Dr. Chaim a couple questions, I just want to um, encourage other listeners to donate as well. Uh, as you know, I made a, um, I've been a listener only for the past uh, year or so, and I made a personal sponsorship-level donation to you. I don't ask for any shout-out, but, um, you know, we value the show, and uh, I would encourage everyone to step up and do the same to support what you do. And I thank you, and... You have helped me with a, a couple of other listeners, and uh, uh, and they too made sponsorship donations, which uh, actually surprised me. And I have you to thank for that. So, um, uh, listeners, it does help, and and we do need your support. And uh, so now, go for it with Dr. Heim. See if you can stump him. No, no stumping, uh, <laughs> Dr. Heim. Good afternoon. <laughs> Um, so my question to you is, uh, again, I don't claim to be, uh, I'm not anywhere, not even near an expert, but I've been listening to your podcast and others about the challenges and the, the, in some cases, you know, the, the positive thinking that others have about being able to build moon base or Mars base. And I watch the 3D videos. I watch how they're trying to do 3D printing of the uh, of the lava creep or whatever it's called. And I would love you to talk about um, uh, two things. What is what is the reality of being able to do any of this type of engineering on Mars or Moon? Uh, you know, can we really do that type of 3D printing? What's the time frame, if at all realistic? How do you build bathrooms? inside these 3D printed things? How do you have plumbing? How does a, a human live rationally and reasonably inside that space? Are there going to be windows that are more than portholes, or are they basically living like on, on the equivalent of caves on the surface? 
and everything else that goes into I, you know, I, I just can't picture how construction, even there, a variation of what we do here on Earth, gets done um, in space, uh, initially from a spaceship, and, and everything else. And then, uh, and then the, the second question, which maybe you'll come to later, is, you know, should we really be focused on Mars, or should we really be focused on a moon base? rather than the Mars base, because the moon base, I think, personally, has much greater national security and other implications. So there's my TM. Well, thanks. Those are excellent questions. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to start from the second question, because that's going to be an easy answer. Uh, we definitely should be focused on the moon. I agree with you. I think that the Mars will eventually happen, uh, and I think a, a lot of things that we discuss will eventually happen. And so I think we're, we're People uh, may disagree is the time scale, but of course that's very important to understand the time scale. Uh, to go to Mars, there are many issues to resolve. Uh, besides all the engineering issues that we will eventually resolve, there are also the biological issues of human survival uh, in the extreme environment of space, the low gravity effects, which is the first, uh, probably the first danger to humans that we have, we don't have a handle on. And then all the other things that we probably can uh, have a handle on, like radiation, uh, shielding against uh, extremes of temperature. Uh, so those things we, we can. So as far as the, the, the 3D printing, um, there's been a lot of advances in 3D printing technology. Um, uh, I'm sort of a, a, a bystander on that. It's not an area of research, but, but because it impacts other research I do, uh, I, I try to keep a little bit... Uh, uh, aware of what's happening. And a, a lot of the 3D printing technology uh, has become very sophisticated uh, and it addresses some of the questions that you mentioned, you know, about plumbing, electrical conduits, um, and we're probably uh, uh, on the verge of being able to build uh, a structure that uh, already has the the plumbing inside and has the electrical conduits. So, so some of these advanced 3D printers can print using multiple media, multiple materials, so they might be able to, uh, you know, the the, um, uh, the, the SolidWorks or, or, or the computational model that we use to guide 3D printers, uh, we would program in them, you know, where the pipes would go, where the electrical conduits would go, and, and a 3D printer would switch media, switch materials when it gets to that location in the printing process. So um, that, it seems to be something that is amenable to, uh, our current technology, or it's getting there pretty quickly. Uh, the other thing I, I would say is that there, uh, the 3D printing obviously is a robotic kind of process, requires robots, requires uh, a lot of energy, requires process, if we're talking the moon, requires process regolith, um, and that all requires a lot of energy. So energy is sort of the currency of doing anything on the moon or in space, um, and uh, the challenge there is having enough energy to do that. The second issue with the moon is, so while we use the regolith as a source of materials, uh, the regolith has a dark side, meaning that it's uh, dangerous um, in its unprocessed form. Um, it, um, it's electrostatically charged. It, it floats uh, when it's disturbed. Uh, when, and we saw that from the Apollo videos. Uh, when, uh, and then it becomes electrostatically charged with a low gravity. It floats around for a long time. We saw it cling to the astronaut suits. We saw it 
make its way into the suits. Um, we saw it make its way into the lungs of astronauts. Uh, so it's, it's a real danger. And so if we have robots on the moon that are doing 3D printing, uh, if, you, if you imagine robotics, uh, you know, there are open areas where there are gears and uh, all kinds of mechanisms working. Uh, so that, that regolith would have to be somehow uh, shielded from the, the, the robots. The robots have to be protected from the regolith getting into them. So the, the maintenance of the robots that are doing the 3D printing is a major challenge at this point. There's been a lot of advancement. NASA has done a lot of work in this. Uh, re- regolith research from all aspects, from understanding how it, what it is, what's in it, how to process it, how to make use of it, as well as how to shield from it, both for machines and, and humans, has been a big area of research. There's a lot of progress there. Um, I would say, you know, 3D printing as, as a, a means by which we actually build habitats on the moon is probably not going to be the first the first way that we do it because of all the issues I just mentioned, uh, to bring uh, these 3D printing robots to the moon and have them networked and processing materials and having enough power, we're talking about a lot of stuff that we have to do. And so I, my view is still that uh, the first robots, the first, sorry, the first uh, habitats on the moon uh, are going to be things that we build on Earth or in orbit and then land them on the lunar surface, and they're going to be our first habitats, whether it's a pressure vessel or some hybrid inflatable structure um, invariably it's going to be that. And we're going to have to build that infrastructure that I described for the 3D printing once we're on the moon. Uh, and I would say, I think I, I answered your question. As far as having um, windows, windows are a challenge, uh, not from the structural perspective, but uh, if, if they're very large, uh, there may be concern that uh, when, it's, uh, when it's sunny on the moon and light comes into the uh, habitat from the sun, It'll basically build up the heat inside the habitat, uh, uh, and the heat rejection, removing heat from inside the structure, is a major major uh, design consideration because of the lack of atmosphere around the structure. So the only way to get rid of heat pretty much is through radiating it, radiating it out from the structure or conducting it into the ground. So uh, thermal control, thermal design is a big aspect of the, the structural design as well, and that's uh, uh, you don't want too much heat building in. Because it, uh, if you think of a habitat, you have computers, all kinds of electronic components. You have people, all of them creating heat. And and if you can't if you can't get rid of it from from the inside of the structure, then you have a, a major heat buildup. So that's that's an issue with windows as well. But maybe maybe they'll maybe there are going to be materials that basically allow you to look out, but don't allow uh, the, the heat to come in from the sun. So uh, that, that might be uh, something that may happen. I didn't think about that. You can't just blow the uh, hot air into space uh, because you can't really that's right. replace it. So that's, that's interesting. But the, but the, um, the, frigid, the, the super cool temperatures outside are not enough to offset the heat generated inside. It sounds like you're saying that. Uh, it, it'll, it'll take some of the heat, but, but uh, it requires to be engineered. It's just not enough. Got it. Now, go, going back to the structure, so I heard a show from a while ago where I think you had one of your students on, I, I think, I hope I'm not remembering, uh, remembering incorrectly, with an inflatable structure. Do you, so do you think it's more likely to be inflatable, or do you see it as like... Um, uh, 
channels that then uh, walls that that are uh, put into uh, one of the large uh, rockets and and then uh, delivered and assembled on the moon. Right. So a, a lot of what happens depends on when it's going to happen. Um, so there has been a lot of advancement in inflatable technologies. Um, the advantage of the inflatable structure, as, as I'm sure you know, is that you can package it here on Earth in a small volume. You bring it to the moon. One way or another, you inflate it, and then you make it rigid so it can be structurally supportive, and then you place regolith on top in order to provide shielding. So the advantage of inflatable, and they can be inflated to almost all, all kinds of shapes, not necessarily just hemisphere, uh, is that you have large volumes. And one of the challenges for humans uh, psychologically for long-term, long-duration uh, habitation uh, on the lunar surface is having sort of large volumes because the pressure vessels that we see on the space station and other lunar concepts, which are press- pressure vessel-based, uh, really are very small. Um, and, um, you know, humans like to see an expanse of space. They don't necessarily want to be sort of in a claustrophobic environment. So as a pioneering thing, you know, astronauts can be trained and, and selected so they, they are okay with those small volumes. But if we're looking at long-term, uh, you know, second-generation habitats will, uh, my guess, will be invariably have a large uh, uh, inflatable component to them. Uh, with respect to the um, uh, the inflatables, actually, Scott, what I was going to ask you: what is the what's what's the maximum size of capacity of um, uh, of the new uh, rockets uh, in terms of what payload that they can carry? Do you happen to know the dimensions on that? Um, as far as mass, mm, yeah, dimensions. I'm thinking what diameter and what height objects can they. Um, right. Um, I, I don't recall the the, the latest uh, uh, SpaceX dimension. David, do you know the dimension of this largest SpaceX volume? No, I I don't. And um, uh, Starship has the early edition that they're working to perfect, and then they have a bigger one. And I don't know New Glenn or New Glenn's capability of going to the moon, and SLS can't get to the moon. It has to go through Gateway. And uh, if we're sending everything to the moon in a human lander that also does not exist, I don't know what those dimensions are, but SpaceX and Blue Origin are supposedly working on human landers. Right. So, so I just looked up uh, Starship. So Starship is 1,000 cubic meters, which, and, and the volume is about 56 feet tall and uh, 26 feet in diameter. So that's 35,000 cubic feet. So uh, according to this, which I assume is correct, is it's basically a slightly larger volume than the International Space Station pressurized volumes. So it's, so it's quite a large volume, 26 feet diameter, 56 feet, so it's like a five-, six-story building. Uh, so it's pretty sizable. Um, and the bigger one so, will be even bigger if they perfect it. Right. And I think, so could you I envision think um, yeah. using pre-assembled modules? Uh, again, the lander is a whole other issue, but assuming that we could deal with that, can you imagine them using pre-assembled modules to connect together? Um, I could imagine that. Um, I would say the, the challenge with, with these modules is that you, you'll need to, to have a, a crew or rob- and or robots to pull, put them together on the lunar surface. So that would be a challenge. One thing that, that I think my understanding uh, is that everybody agrees is that 
There's just so much you can use astronauts as construction people on the moon because of the radiation environment. Uh, so whatever don't we you, do... Don't you have that same involved. issue on the inflatables? I mean, you inflate something, and now you have to put all the interior inside, don't you? Right, right. But if you... For, suppose, for example, uh, you, you, you have already a, a small... Um, uh, habitat on the moon for the astronauts that's shielded and protected, and then you land an inflatable structure that deploys autonomously, and you and you put regolith on top as soon as possible. Then you have a large volume within which to work that's already shielded. So the the logistics would be that you'd have to have shielding in place uh, where where astronauts can can be safe for the majority of the time that they're they're on the lunar surface. Got it. All right, last question. Um, number one, do you inflate the inflatables using compressed air that's, that is transported up? And part B of that last question is, I, I think I've read that you have to put three to four feet of regolith on top to protect from both micrometeorites and from radiation. Can an inflatable really support that much regolith, that much weight on top? Right, so the the inflation would be with with some sort of a gas that uh, some neutral gas. It could be uh, uh, brought from the earth in a highly pressurized state to bring it to bring it up, and then uh, you would likely would need some sort of uh, assistance, maybe from um, uh, oxygen that's brought from regolith process. So that depends on what sort of infrastructure you already have on on the lunar surface. Uh, as far as the weight bearing capacity, the inflatable basically. Is, I think of it like a form that 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 is um, put out there, and it creates a shape. And then there are technologies that would take that uh, that membrane, which is many could be many layers, not just like well, like a balloon. It's, it's actually a, potentially a structural kind of uh, membrane that could be then rigidized um, using various technologies. So it'll, it'll basically, once it's inflated, the idea is that it would be made rigid. And then at that point, we would be able to support a lot of weight. And most likely, um, um, many of the concepts I've seen will have uh, secondary structures inside that inflated but rigid structure to provide additional support, uh, uh, structural support for the, for the regolith. Now, the internal pressurization uh, dominates, is, is larger than the weight of the regolith on the outside. So as long as everything is intact, that internal pressurization is sufficient to to counter the weight of the regolith on top. Got it. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for entertaining those questions, Dr. Fayyam. Yeah. David, thank you, thank you also, okay. and um, have a great day. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, you very too. much. Thank you. Um, listeners, you can uh, also give us a call and while we do no politics on this show. I do make uh, announcements that come in and uh, from friends or from uh, from news, uh, because you're listening to this instead of being available for other news shows. So I'll just pass on that uh, Governor DeSantis dropped out of the uh, presidential race, and I'm, wow. just, I'm just getting the alerts on it now. So I just wanted to share it because I appreciate your listening to the space show rather than doing other things where you would, you know, be routinely getting news alerts and that information. And I do want to thank AJ for bringing it to my attention before I saw the news alerts on the cell phone. Uh, you know, Florida is a big Space Coast uh, area, and uh, and it's key to uh, our space program, in my opinion. 
uh, even though maybe a lot of the private sector companies are elsewhere from Florida, um, I've always wondered and I've asked questions uh, of policy people to what degree does being really supportive of the Space Coast and the space program influence policy and candidates and nobody thinks it influences anything very much because space is just uh, not that big and it's not on the horizon of most people and of course I think it should be fundamental and key but apparently it isn't and election after election we don't see space as a major issue and we don't see development of the space coast or other space areas as a major um, issue either so I just throw that out there. It's really not part of the show today, but I think it'd be nice to have a really space-focused president for a change, and uh, I guess we're going to keep waiting uh, for someone who is space-focused, and I don't believe going down to see a shuttle flight or making a tour of KSC or JSC or something like that means you're space-focused. I, I think that's more kiss-ass politics if you want to know the truth, but... I really wish that would change and space were a more predominant factor uh, in in our elections, both for commercial and for national security. But um, listeners, you can call in and talk to Dr. Benaroya. Uh, the line is clear, 866-687-7223. When you were talking to the gentleman who who just called, are you suggesting that at some point, prefabricated, ready-to-go habitats will go to the moon. Like I can go out and buy a free prefabricated home. It's got the plumbing in it. It's got the electrical lines in it. It's got whatever is in the walls and the outlets and uh, the gas connections. Uh, don't tell Biden that. For the, for the kitchen, uh, it's ready to go. Just go to Home Depot and pick up your appliances and move them in. Are, are we going to see that kind of readiness for lunar structures? Is that what you mean by 3D printing with all the plumbing and the electrical and then the conduits and everything already in the walls? Uh, uh, no, no, I, I don't mean that we're going to bring that from, from Earth. What I mean is uh, um, at some point we'll have the technology and the energy sources available for um, extracting the materials we need for, uh, for building habitats on the moon from the, from the regoliths. So uh, the 3D printing basically would uh, would use the uh, the regolith and its constituent elements to uh, to shift what it's doing at each layer of the construction. So, for example, if there's a, a if, say just for example three feet three feet off three feet off the ground, there are going to be pipes that are going to be used for uh, for water or waste. Then the 3D printer would then switch from the building material to the piping material as, as it's moving up the structure and building the layers. So it would basically create that pipe as it's building the layers of the structure. So it's not really prefabricated in the earth sense. It's it's basically creating the, the structure as it moves up the height of the structure from different materials. How, while we're waiting to see if anyone else wants to call you, how fast is the engineering and the solution sets and the fabrication work moving for the moon. And do we actually have to be on the moon to really make progress? Is is what we're doing now theoretical and it's plausible 
but we really need footprints up there to do this? Or are we making real tangible hardware structural progress that we know is going to work? I think there's a lot of progress being made on Earth, and a number of the people who have developed 3D printing technologies uh, have an eye toward uh, transferring those printers to the moon. So they're they're working with um, regular simulants. They're they're trying to sort of create as much as they can the environment that their machines would find on the moon. Uh, there's even one that I'm familiar with that uh, has a very large 3D printer that could build that is large enough to build whole houses, you know, size, sized uh, structures, uh, also trying to do it with uh, regular simulants. So I think uh, it, the technology is evolving quite rapidly here, uh, but because of the issues that we spoke about earlier, you know, the, the, the environment on the moon, um, all these robots that we're going to use to build things uh, have electronics that are sensitive to radiation, that have their sensitive to the temperature. Uh, so I think some of that stuff we can we can figure out how to do on Earth, uh, but I think uh, eventually uh, there's nothing like being there in order to to account for the things that we can't duplicate in a simulation environment on the Earth's uh, on the Earth's surface. Uh, I have a an email listener who wants to ask you a question. Todd uh, is in in San Diego, and he says uh, the discussion so far has been about structures on the Moon. But because of microgravity and space settlement and people talking on the space show relentlessly about childbirth for for settlement and having children in space, they point to O'Neillian structures. Where is the technology for uh, free space structures and habitats other than these small private space station-like projects that aren't really the same thing. Are we moving toward developing technologies and making progress to live in free space, or is that even further down the road than the moon and Mars? Um, in my view, that's further down the road because um, I would guess, I would say that the ISS is probably uh, our current state-of-the-art of building space stations. Uh, the Chinese have a space station. I don't know that it's much more advanced, if at all, from the ISS. Uh, so I think construction in space is not a trivial thing. Uh, in some ways, construction on a planetary body like the moon uh, is more amenable to our current state-of-the-art than, than floating in space. Um, we saw that the ISS took quite a while to build. I think it was at at least a decade to get the first basic structure in place. Uh, there's a lot of issues regarding uh, its maintenance. Um, there are issues uh, you'd have to keep. At least the initial ones would, would not be the, uh, of the of the scale that, that the caller uh, that, that your um, listener is, is describing. Um, I understand the, the interest in these very large structures that can then rotate and create artificial gravity. Um, but we're talking a pretty far distant future for something on the scale of tens of thousands or, as O'Neill was talking about, hundreds of thousands of people and, and these large structures. I'm not saying that it can happen. It sort of relates to what I was mentioning earlier, but everything that we can sort of describe will happen. But whether it happens in 10 years or 100 years uh, is, is, is really sort of the crux of how we allocate resources as we go into space. 
do those structures have to be as large as what you're suggesting? Can't they be somewhere between ISS size and humongous size? They can. There's no, I mean, they can be any size that we decide to build them. Uh, but um, uh, say, say it would be like a mile long and maybe like, uh, you know, a thousand feet in diameter, that would be pretty sizable. Um, but the the amount of mass that we have to bring into orbit and then that build, um, we were just talking about how much the uh, Starship can carry up, you know, how many Starship launches do we need to get the material to build something like that? Is, is there a thousand launches, 10,000 launches? I really haven't done any numbers on that, but it's a, it's a lot of launches, and that doesn't even include all the stuff we have to put inside to live. Um, um, so I, I don't oppose that. You know, I mean, I think it's uh, as a concept. It addresses the the issue of low G for for humans. Um, I, I have to believe that before we're able to build something on that scale, that the biological science will um, find some at least the temporary cure for our aversion to low gravity. Um, I think that that's probably going to happen before we can build in space those kind of settlements. Are you in touch with people? Doing this kind of biological science work, do you see? Is it is it a focus of uh, of intense work? Is, are people really looking for the solution, uh, or is it just out there and and it's illusive? I think, yeah, I think it's more of a niche at this point. There are papers published on low G effects on humans, so so there's progress. Maybe there's more, and I'm not familiar with the whole field, but maybe there's more. Or that kind of work within NASA, within ESA, you know, their research, their bio- biological research efforts. Uh, I, I mean, they're obviously very familiar with that, the need for that kind of understanding. Uh, so I would assume that there is, but, you know, compared to the amount of work that goes into studying human disease and Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative diseases, it's a, it's a tiny, tiny effort, I think. Um, so um, for space settlement, and uh, for uh, all the people that advocate living in space, the realism is it's likely going to be the moon or Mars before it's free space. That's definitely, in my view, that's pretty certain. Um, just because of the mass that's required to put stuff in space and the, the level of effort required to put all these pieces together, um, we're talking we're talking a huge effort, even for something that's maybe one percent the size of, of uh, O'Neill. Uh, space settlement. Uh, listeners, we'd love to hear your your calls and uh, your questions for our guest, Dr. Ben Arroyo. 866-687-7223 is our phone number. Uh, you can continue sending emails, drspace at thespaceshow.com. Uh, this is Jacques, J-A-C-Q-U-E, Tucson. And he says... Uh, from all of your engineering knowledge about space, what is the A number one prime blue ribbon, most supreme, obnoxious, offensive, and difficult challenge to overcome? Uh, I would say um, human survival in low gravity environments is probably the number one topic. Um, it's something that uh, we have a hard time um, matching on Earth for testing, uh, and there are numerous uh, effects on the human body that over long periods of time um, are, are basically uh, 
potentially uh, fatal over long periods of time that we plan to have people in space. So I think uh, we know how to shield against radiation. We know how to shield against thermal effects. We know how to shield against micrometeorites. Um, so I think I think that's going to be the big issue. How do we survive as human beings in low gravity environments? Uh, we see some of the uh, some of the effects uh, on the, on humans in the space station, which is a microgravity environment. You know, much obviously almost zero g. Uh, but we it, we get a sense that uh, we get a lot of issues uh, from uh, bone loss to uh, effects on the eyes to just uh, the ability to just uh, have normal lives there. So. Uh, we, we don't know how to do that yet. While we're waiting to, to see if anyone else wants to call and, and talk to you, and hopefully they do, one of the questions that John Batchelor likes to ask these astrophysicists and scientists uh, is, if we give you an unlimited budget, what would you do with it to further your research? So if for your, uh, you know, living in space, engineering, and uh, and studies, if you had an unlimited budget, all the money in the world, all the money from the U.S. government printing presses were going to you, and uh, the deficit was going from $34 trillion to $73 trillion, and it was all yours, what would you do with it to, to, to further being able to live in space? Um, I think I would do everything I can to put a, a small a small settlement on the moon where, where astronauts would go, you know, on three month uh, stints and start building the infrastructure on the moon, and then uh, setting up facilities where we can do some testing, both engineering and biological testing on humans. I meaning that we need to understand how how to alleviate some of those issues. I think that's I think we would benefit a lot by being there. So so I think that's what I would do. I would just create facilities small facilities just to get us rolling rather than um, some of these more complex facilities, you know, for example, uh, like Gateway and some of the larger, larger efforts. I think there's something to be said for getting, getting our foot on the moon and then having astronauts go back and forth uh, so that they can build an infrastructure, both for energy, for robotics, for biology, all those things. Uh, you have a caller patiently holding. Good afternoon, caller. Welcome to the show. Who are you? Where are you, please? Uh, this, this is John in Fort Worth. Go for it. Yeah. Um, well, one question I have, a, it's kind of a very basic thing, but maybe I don't know capable of progress on it, but one of the problems they ran into on the original um, the moon landings was all the, this dust that's on the moon and it getting into everything, into, on the suits and into the vehicles and so forth. So do we have any, have we made any progress on how to deal with that and to prevent it from becoming a problem? Because if, um, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. That's that's one of the big issues with the regolith. So on one side, we need it for for its materials and 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 for 3D printing and for getting oxygen and hydrogen and other things out of it for for use. And the other side of the coin is that it's uh, carcinogenic for humans and that it uh, gets into into all of our machinery and, and gears and 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 uh, gums up the work. So uh, there's been a lot of progress. I think. People were taken by surprise during Apollo. They, they, they really didn't understand the, the, the properties of the regolith, and uh, they eventually quickly saw that it was clinging to everything, as you said, the spacesuits. It got pulled into the, uh, the capsule. Uh, and so since then, NASA has been doing a lot of research on, 
understanding the, the mechanical properties, the electro, electronic properties of the, of the regolith and trying to alleviate it, uh, trying to use its electrostatic properties to, with magnetic fields to try to keep it away from, uh, from, uh, our equipment. Uh, it's sort of a work in progress. Uh, there's been a lot of, re- a lot of research, a lot of successful research, but also still things to figure out. I think one of the outcomes of that is that, uh, uh, uh just understanding the regolith is that, uh, uh, people assume, I think, that eventually when we have uh, facilities on the lunar surface, that surface probably would have been centered and basically made solid so that we don't have to deal with a regolith in the area that we're living and working. Um, so that's one solution. Um, and also uh, the landing and taking off of rockets will be pretty far from where, where we're living and working on the moon because of our understanding that the regolith can almost be put into orbit when a, when a rocket lands on a lunar surface and, that, and it can be flying around for a long time. So, um, uh, so there's been some lessons learned as far as just sort of how we, uh, uh, lay out the facilities and how we land, how we take off, uh, but certainly centering the surface of the moon around the, the, where we would be living would be sort of one way to deal with part of that. Um, it doesn't answer how we deal with, with it before we center the lunar surface, because we're going to be landing on regular, regular, as you as you describe, right? So we have to be able to sort of isolate our equipment uh, from that regolith. And there is progress, but it's it's not a solved problem. There are still things to a lot of things to still figure out. Mm-hmm. Well, well, as we're approaching the somewhere in the next few years, the uh, return of the moon with the Artemis three or whatever, whenever it happens, do we uh, are we do we have a step ahead on that from where we were on Apollo 17? I mean, do we have any progress that we're really prepared to implement at this point? I wonder about that, too. That's more of a near-term issue. Uh, I, there's definitely a lot more understanding uh, uh, as far as technology. Uh, I'm not I'm not super up-to-date on the technology of, of regular handling, but I have to believe that uh, NASA is fully aware of it because it's had uh, – um, Many many research efforts that are focused totally on that. Um, I, I can't really answer whether the, the technology is there. I uh, I think that given you know we're still a number of years away from actually landing with people on the moon, that that would be part of that solution, the, the solution for for the initial landers. Yeah. Do either of you know if the the new version spacesuits for either Mars or for the moon that are supposed to keep the regolith out of the living quarters somehow. Uh, has there ever been a decision on what that spacesuit is going to look like, or are they still working on designs for, say, the Artemis astronauts, and when are they going to cut and, and punt and run and, and come up with a design to fabricate and actually test an Artemis spacesuit for the moon? Um yeah, I don't know specifically, but as we were speaking, I just looked up the European Space Agency, and this is something from 2020 where they're they're seeking dustproof materials for a lunar return. So, so it, it seems like uh, it's not a soft problem, uh, even even up to the current era. You know, so they're trying to deal with it. Um, I think I think they're still trying to figure it out. Uh, I don't know how the new spacesuits, uh, the spacesuit designs, are actually. Uh, um, how resistant they are to the regolith, um, because you know the regolith is also highly abrasive. 
So whatever is being used, any material used on the lunar surface, have to resist uh, the the regular uh, abrasion problems. Well, if there are any listeners listening who are paying attention to spacesuit development and you would like to contribute to our discussion, uh, we would uh, like to hear from you. I know there's cosmetic spacesuits. Uh, you see pictures of astronauts in cosmetic spacesuits that maybe they can wear inside a capsule as long as there's no emergency. But uh, that's a far cry different from a, an EVA spacesuit or a lunar or Martian surface spacesuit. So, yeah, I see one uh, one one article here talks about NASA's trying to use sonic waves, electrostatic devices, and extra slick coatings as a way to repel space dirt. This is in an article in Wired magazine. Um, so, uh, and this article is from 2021. So I think I think they're still trying various technologies. I don't think it's a solved issue. Hey, they can put that technology in my house and see how well it repels <laughs> desert dust and dirt and dog dirt and dander. Let them, I'll let them test it. So uh, that's right. Uh, listeners, uh, uh, John, do you have anything else you you'd like to say? Although I have an email that you might want to stay on and maybe participate in. I don't know, but uh, I'll read the email and you decide. Yeah. Uh, Alex is in Houston, and he said, uh, David, build the show as anything goes. So I have a non-lunar, non-Mars engineering question for you. There is a lot of talk and a a lot of disclosure uh, talk in Congress about what may be flying around in our skies as UAPs. I'm curious uh, we do know that if the performance characteristics that are reported are for real, that's not likely Earth-based technology. But from your perspective as an engineer, could it be Earth-based technology and it's just not in the mainstream or it's behind black walls? Could vehicles using advanced Earth engineering and science actually move around like they say some of those UAPs do. Could you envision our engineering of today finding a way to permit that kind of behavior? Um, well, since I don't have access to uh, a highly secret technology, this is purely guessing, uh, I would say no. We don't, we don't have the technology uh, because the materials that we use could not survive the kinds of uh, right turns and ex- ex- super accelerations that we see uh, in those videos. And certainly uh, h- humans could not survive those kind of uh, uh, motions either. So I think that um, I'd have to say no based on what I'm familiar with. It's just uh, uh, the laws of physics tell us, you know, if you, if you have a, something going at, at a high speed and then it makes a right turn, then the stresses are just enormous. Uh, we we can't do, we don't know how to do that. So uh, so uh, even though I'm I'm sort of uh, uh, favorable to the belief that there may be um, uh, visitors from out there, just uh, from a statistical point of view, uh, um, I don't think that we we have that knowledge. Do you think we have the knowledge? Let, let's just bring it home to you. If um, you were contacted by the clandestine black ops people and say we have 
one of these crashed vehicles, and we want you to be the lead engineer to back engineer it to see how it works. Could you back engineer something like that? Well, I would say you'd need uh, a whole team of engineers and uh, probably a couple of dozen engineering disciplines to actually do that kind of thing. So I think, I think it, it, you know, it, it's a hard question to answer because I don't know how how advanced these technologies are. Like if they're, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ahead of us, or are they uh, uh, 500 years ahead of us? If it, you know, if it's uh, if it, if it's not that far ahead, then we can probably back engineer some of the. But some of it could be so far advanced that we wouldn't even know where to begin. So you couldn't look at a piece of equipment and figure out what it does and how it works. Not necessarily. Well, maybe you need to go to a different engineering school. Study advanced engineering concepts or something. Um, when you were studying in school, did you ever were you ever given back engineering projects? I mean, are engineers in any discipline trained to back engineer things? Oh well, I think uh, all engineers can can do some reverse engineering. I think um, I think if the technology is very broad, meaning that it encompasses a variety of engineering skills, like say electronics, materials, uh, chemistry, you know, structures, uh-huh. uh, then you'd need you'd need specialists in all of those areas working together. And uh, and part of the part of the challenge would be that you'd have to actually test the materials. You have to test what can this material do. So you'd have to be able to first get the properties before you can reverse engineer. John, you want to add to that before I see if anyone else wants to call us? Well, I would tend to agree with that, with what you said. I mean, like a reverse engineering project that really did happen, I think, was that the Russians uh, reverse engineered our B-29 bomber, I believe, into the TU-4, I believe. So, you know, but... But they had, the technologies and the basic sciences were similar, so it was something that's feasible. But if you have something that's this exotic, if it really existed, which I tend to think it does, but if it does, I would tend to think like, you know, it's like it would be almost incomprehensible what to do. I mean, I think at this point, the best we'd be doing would just be studying it, see what kind of materials they were, what structures what we could find out about it. You know, I think that's about where we probably are and maybe kind of stumped. Um, that would right. be what I think is, that's my guess, but you know, I mean, based on everything I know about it, but, but which is mostly yeah. rumor, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, and, and imagine that we, say we were in the 1940s and we were given some, we gave somebody an Apple iPhone or our advanced computers, uh, and tell them reverse engineering that they wouldn't be able to because at that point in 1940, they didn't know anything about electronics, about uh, these uh, special, you know, electronic junctions and, and the semiconductors. They wouldn't know what to, I mean, they, they would have to start testing it and see what it can do. And, and eventually, you know, after a lot of effort, maybe they could, you know, get up to speed. But the further in the future that technology is, uh, the, the more difficult it is. And it's probably exponential, even more than exponential uh, in complexity. Yeah. Uh- I'd agree with that. Well, I guess I'll clear a line and see if anybody else wants to call here. Um, Thank you, John. I appreciate it. Um, okay. Listeners, um, I've got an email to read, but uh, if you want to call Dr. Benroya, it is 866-687-7223. Adrian in San, San Diego sent an email in. As far as the discussion 
on lunar habitats and windows for 3D printed structures. The engineering on the new NASA X-59 supersonic jet has eliminated a forward cockpit window and will use instead a high-resolution XVS forward-facing camera and display. Hold on, let me put them on hold. And display. Uh, I lost my place for the X-59 pilot that will show the airspace in front of the plane. So far as the habitat windows, they wouldn't need them. Similar camera and display systems could easily eliminate the structural heating and cooling problems uh, that Dr. Benaroya mentioned. Adrian San Diego, uh, Heim, what do you what do you think? Cameras over windows? Yeah, I think uh, people have uh, actually spoken about that in a lot of studies. They're replacing windows once once the soft these large flat panel TVs come into play, and now they're super high resolution. Then you can really put a a flat panel TV on a wall and have the view of the outside without having the window. Uh, so I think that's that's very feasible. And in fact, if we have uh, uh, underground habitats, so like in lava tubes and things like that, where windows can't exist, uh, then that would be an answer to give people a feel that they're really outdoors, even though they're not really looking directly at the outdoors. Do engineers concern themselves with long-term emotional, psychological impact of relying on artificial scenes and cameras rather than to be able to really see outside? I mean, I... Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think there it's are engineers a, who deal with human factors and uh, physiological issues. Uh, they work with uh, psychologists, with medical doctors. You know, there's a... Are these uh, big hum- issues replacing the real environment with TV images or camera images? Uh, there is research on that, that from the from the psychological point of view, we want uh, one of the issues is, is how long can a, a person be in a very close environment? And so I think uh, things like the, the colors of the interior, the shapes of the rooms, all these things come into play uh, in dealing with human factors. I wonder if they studied the effectiveness of human deodorant for close factors. I think yeah, no, sure no, one wants, <laughs> no one wants to mention that. Uh, let's see who your caller is. Um, good afternoon, caller. Who are you? Where are you? And thank you for your call today. Uh, yes, hi. This is AJ from uh, College Park, Maryland. Hi, AJ. Uh, hi. 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 How are you? Uh, nice, hi, to, nice to talk nice with to you again. Nice to talk to you. Uh, yeah. Uh, I have one comment and a couple of questions, actually, and, you know, I mean, I'm sort of a little bit uh, curious about those questions, so uh, not, you know, I'm sort of trying to uh, try to learn about them afterward. The first comment that I have is that there is a company, now I can't remember the name of the company, XARC or something of that type was the name of the company, Our Texas, who is going to make who is, uh, who is uh, um, you know, proposing to make bricks out of uh, out of uh, the regulator moon and then, you know, interlock them together in, in a shape that, that can be interlocked together. And then we make them to build actually rocket landing and takeoff um, spots so that, right. uh, you know, the rockets or, or whatever, they land, they don't, you know, distribute or dist- disturb the... Uh, the regolith uh, that goes into orbit and stuff like that. And also, later on, maybe sometime in future, build roads using that. 
However, they, they require, they will require, I'm sure, uh, a large amount of, uh, you know, a large amount and maybe high temperature heat to be able to do that. And I think one of the things that uh, ESA has been, you know, talking about is using solar heat to do that. And I don't think that is the right approach. And I think that right approach is going to have to be fission, energy from fission, uh, to be able to do that, you know. And so, uh, first, before I ask any questions, uh, any any comments on that, Haim? Yeah, so... Uh, I would agree with you that uh, the power, the major power source on the moon, uh, will have to include yeah. nuclear nuclear power. I, I don't think there's any way to get around that, even though there's a lot of yeah. solar energy and battery technology and that sort of thing. So I think nuclear nuclear power is certainly going to be a part of the equation for uh, power on the moon and, and Mars for sure. And I think I, I regarding right. those tiles that you mentioned for the landers, I remember a couple of years ago there was a paper in one of the journals. Uh, talking about, uh, and I think NASA was a co-author on that paper, somebody from NASA, mm-hmm. where they had these tiles that were uh, that had, uh, were studied for the purpose of landing uh, on them. And so I think there was some technology being okay. developed along those lines. Uh, so I, I agree with you on that as well, that that could be something yeah. that could be a possibility. Yeah, there's something called the ELSIC, you know, I'm sure you know about lunar surface Innovation Consortium out that that's NASA funded and learns out of Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab and uh, you know there have been uh, papers presented. This was this is like within a year or so papers yeah. and talks uh, from this particular company and one more uh, on this that I cannot remember the name of. One more anyway. That's you know that's a pretty interesting uh, interesting idea. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think but, uh, I think the key is materials. You know, in so many in so many applications, the materials technology is sort of the fundamental thing to understand before you can move forward. Right. Right. Okay. All right. The other questions. <laughs> um, and obviously, this is you know, um, um, uh, this is uh, this is a little bit you know different uh, a different direction here. The um, uh, uh, the uh, proposal or the solution that was proposed at um, at the congressional hearing last Wednesday about using SLS, two SLS, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, two two SLS rockets, and the upper stages, which were Orion and um, and I guess it was, uh, you know, uh, some other. Some other stage um, that has received a lot of criticism. You know that has been that has been panned. I guess you know. Uh, so my solution for that is instead of using SLS, uh, forget about SLS. I mean SLS costs about 4.1 billion dollars per launch, something of that order. What if we were to use Falcon Heavy? Which has approximately the same amount of, let's call it firepower, uh, as uh, SLS does in terms of taking, you know, anywhere from 38 to 62 ton to lower orbit, depending on whether you, uh, uh, you know, use that in completely reusable fashion, Falcon Heavy that is, or 
54 for if the center uh, stage, core stage, is, uh, you know, discarded, but the other two come back and land just just stay. How beautiful they land. Come back in Kennedy and land. Uh, so even then it is 54, which is more tonnage than uh, whatever the SLS's, uh, um, you know, numbers are, which is 45 tons. So if that can be done, then instead of $4 trillion for, for each one of them, um, and we know that um, Falcon Heavy would cost anywhere from 100 to $200 million. You know? Isn't that much, much cheaper and much... I mean, Falcon Heavy has been has flown, what, seven or eight times and all of them successful? I mean, for God's sake, why don't we do just simply that and use the, you know, the other stages and other proportion of that particular uh, solution? I don't know if you've seen that or not, but I know David has, you know. So yeah, that's I'm my um, second yeah. question, oh, first question, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think, uh, I think uh, certainly SLS is problematic given the cost and given the uh, regular delays in it being functional. And uh, the turnaround time is very slow, a couple of years between launches. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure mm-hmm. it'll get better and cheaper, but I think, I think uh, you know, we need to take advantage of the technology that, that SpaceX and, and perhaps uh, – Blue Origin have been developing. I think um, right. certainly for uh, for bringing non non human material into space, the right. rockets yes. are, are a good way to go. Uh, once we're talking about bringing a lot of people into space, and obviously as, you, as I'm, sh- I'm sure you agree, uh, then we have to have uh, a different kind of space system or human rating of of the of these systems. And, but we have well, actually have that already. actually yeah. the yeah, actually, the uh, the upper stage of that is going to be, you know, used for taking the Orion and capsule and and uh, the right. upper stage itself has have been human rated. They have been used, and right. they are obviously have been human rated. And Falcon Nine has been human rated to take right. Dragon up there. So Falcon Heavy right. would also be, you know, could be also classified as being able to do human rating. Uh, so it could do both, you know. It really could. Yeah, do both. and I agree. Uh, I think the renewability is a, is a big factor at keeping costs down, and uh, I think uh, it's certainly proven to be uh, a reliable technology. And I think I think it's going to be tough. One of the challenges for NASA is to uh, keep uh, support, funding support for for the SLS, and it'll have to find some justification that it can do something that nothing else can do, and I'm yeah. not sure what that is, really, at this point. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Right, thank you. Um, thank you. And uh, I'm sorry, uh, David, you, did, did you have anything to say here? Just in general, you know, whenever these topics come up, uh, all of my callers, I'm, I'm calling them my callers, my family here on the space show, uh, everyone brings yeah. up cost, okay? Cost, 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 cost. So here's the deal, guys. Let's let's have a little reality check, and then you, you, the two of you can put me in my place. So if you've got an overweight friend who just eats, 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 and that's why they're overweight, you're not going to get them to lose weight by talking about it unless you can get them to quit eating, right? They have to stop their addiction to overeating, uh, even exercise won't help if they're overeating all the time. 
So NASA gets its funding and its orders from Congress. And Mm -hmm. Congress is one fat pig slob on on (laughs) spending. And if you substitute food for a really out-of-control fat person for spending, there's no difference. You can't get them to pay attention to anything that is economic or cost-saving if they are addicted to overeating. And these pigs are addicted to overeating at the public trough. And they don't care that SLS is going to be more expensive than Falcon Heavy. And they have reasons for not caring. How many people have their jobs that vote for them that are in districts? Uh, that's a reason mm-hmm. to overeat. It, until something happens to change uh, the will of Congress to substitute the national good for overeating to buy votes and to do other things, whether something is more cost-effective or not isn't, in my opinion, going to make any difference. And so you can shout from the rooftops that Falcon Heavy would do the job like you're saying, A.J., but they want to spend mm-hmm. the money because there's a benefit to them for spending the money, whether they feel good and they're satisfied or whether they, they get votes and get to stay in office with all of their quirks and benefits. So I, I don't know how you short-circuit this process. But, yes, there are some people that care about spending and do try to hold the lid down, but that isn't the way the votes come in, is it? So if you if you want to go argue that Falcon Heavy is going to be more cost-effective, I think you need to find another argument because you're talking about people that are really, really addicted to overeating, and the food of choice is spending years in my money. And, um, you know, just telling them is, is not going to do the job, and just giving them an, another option is not going to do the job because there's too many benefits associated with their overeating. Now, that's how I see it. Most of you who know me know I'm a cynical guy. But, you know, I've watched this process go on and on and on for decades. And spending always wins. I mean, there there have been very few cost-effective victories uh, for cutting costs. And I just read the other day that we're now over $34 trillion in the national debt. Over, can you believe that? $34 trillion. Mm. And, the, and the interest on that alone is about $1.2 trillion. Uh, What is NASA's whole budget? What, $25 billion? And the interest right, yeah. is in way, some of those way, of you that are... NASA, yeah, I mean, NASA survives because it, it, comparatively it's a small amount of money compared Correct. to other things. So, you know, <laughs> some, several of you who are really good at math, if NASA's budget's $25 billion, and the interest is $1.25 trillion, how much more interest are we paying than what we fund NASA? And do you really think they care about controlling costs? If they did, we wouldn't have a $34 trillion national debt. Right. So come up with a better argument, A.J., because cost savings for Falcon Heavy is just not going to cut it. Well, the thing is that the, it's not just cost saving. It's not like 20% or 30%. There's a factor of 20 difference. They don't care. I mean, isn't that... <laughs> they don't care. That's, that's enough to shame them. Well, they don't care and what about we need that to do. <laughs> They don't care about that either. There's too many benefits for them to spend the money. 
Well, then find ways to for them to spend money in their district from Falcon Heavy, from from that kind of a thing. Find ways to do that. If you take the money away from SLS or something, don't take it away from their district that much. Just find ways to spend money in their district doing other things. For example, like this LOI, uh, that uh, COI or LOI, that uh, lunar uh, orbiter that like Griffin is talking about. Develop that. Give 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 those those district district the money to to develop uh, that instead. I mean that that's a win win for the country and uh, their uh, constituents and their and all of those people can also get the money um, and and uh, we just come out ahead in terms of time also in being able to do that. I mean one of the arguments that Mike Griffin made was that we don't want we don't want to go and watch uh, on TV uh, the Chinese land on the moon and we are sitting there twiddling our thumbs here and you know and the Chinese have been saying that they land on the moon by 2030 but I think that my guess is that they're going to land on the moon by 2028 you know? and so if that is the argument that we are making then we are making an argument that we need to get there as fast as possible also not just not just in terms of saving money but this is a threefer or a fourfer that we can save money immense amount of money and the drug work still can continue in their whatever loving districts that they have and also we can get there in time for uh, for us to be watching the chinese come if they they do come and and of course, you know, in this case, uh, David, your argument that we are doing this for to stay on the moon and not just to put, uh, you know, boots on the ground, etc., those kinds of things, that is true. I agree with that completely. You know, so well, they could they could use the money to to build demo thorium plants and nuclear plants to to, <laughs> to power our grid. I mean, there's so much productive things they could do. With money yes, they're right. blowing into the wind, but you yes. know, it's really hard to deal with addicted people. People that live with addicted people and rehab and all of that know how hard right. it is to work with addiction. And our Congress is addicted to yours and my money. And yeah, but I'm saying I'm saying that money you can be they can remain addicted. Give them money, they're fine, but just spend it on something different than as just simply SLS. Spend it on developing the upper stage, reusable upper stage. So there's there's a lot of work that needs to be done for reusable upper stage. Um, you know, the re-entry upper stage, landing, etc. Those kinds of real upper stage, uh, not just starship uh, type of uh, thing that they are trying to do uh, here. Come up with a great way to sell it. We we have one listener who is is complaining about our discussions and wants to go back to space engineering. So uh, we 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 can do that because I'm not going to solve the gluttony of the U.S. Congress on the space show. But um, uh, AJ, do you have any more commentary or any anything uh, else you want to say? No, I I just wanted to ask some question about uh, some engineering question basically, which is the. Uh, Closed-loop turbines, uh, you, you know, your listener wants to know about that. So closed-loop turbines, um, can you sort of uh, uh, make some comments on 
how that would work, how well that could work on the moon and also on Earth, actually, close to turbine, either using CO2 or something else. Yeah, I'm for, afraid that's for creating I'm, electricity. I'm not that yeah. familiar with, I have to say. You're not that familiar with it? Right. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, that's about it. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, AJ. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Listeners, there's still time if you would like to call and, and talk to Dr. Benaroya. You know, over the years, I have really tried to get members of Congress on the space show. Not retired or people that got defeated from office, but, you know, actually in Congress serving right now. And I have a zero track record on that, even with help from people who promised they would deliver XYZ congressperson to the show. I've never had uh, a congressman who is actively in the Congress on the space show in 23 years, and I have really tried to do that. Um, So I don't know if there's any significance to that or not, but I just thought I would uh, throw it out. And I'm a nice guy. I don't abuse guests. I don't don't abuse guests. They'd be treated with great, great, great respect. Uh, Hi, caller. Welcome to the program today. Who are you and where are you, please? Hi, this is John in Fremont, California, and I'm an addict to O'Neill colonies. So, uh, you're talking to, uh, talking about addiction, so, um, I, I'm not gonna ask for a 12-step recovery here, but, uh, uh, I would, uh, ask, I am, hey, hi, am, how you doing? Hey, how are you doing? How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. So, so you, you mentioned earlier, about the, the mass needed for, for um, even even a, a smaller sized O'Neill colony, and listeners probably most most listeners know about O'Neill's concept for uh, mass drivers on the moon. And I just right. wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, well, first of all, I, I mean, we could, we could deliver a mass driver via rocket or we could build it in situ. And with, uh, with, um, Blue Origin's recent, uh, research on their Blue Alchemist process where they're taking regolith and building solar cells and actually they're building electrical wire as well, um, out of regolith and they've demonstrated some of this technology. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And and uh, I mean, that would solve the math problem, right? So you could deliver a lot of regolith uh, right. to where you want in space, and then um, process it there. Right. So um, mass drivers on the moon are, are a, a useful concept for a lot of other kinds of activities, like you mentioned. Uh, in fact, an interesting uh, statistic is if you have the infrastructure on the moon and you have the mass driver there, it would be cheaper to, to uh, put something into low Earth orbit from the moon than it would be from uh, from the Earth. I mean, in general, that because of the difference in gravity. So, mass drivers could actually put things into orbit around the moon and beyond um, with uh, essentially horizontal, almost horizontal launchers. So if, if the infrastructure is on the moon, where we can actually process regolith and get all the materials we need from there, uh, that could be a great source for an eventual uh, space station of some sort. So I, I agree with that possibility. Yeah, I do too. And uh, 
so I I hope that um, someone's working on that or thinking about it. Uh, my next question is um, regarding your um, uh, mention earlier of uh, inflatables and the uh, specifically the the hybrid inflatable that you worked with um, uh, with one of your grad students. I think his name is Rohit Dronadula. And that's right. Yeah. Um, I, I I actually collaborated with you on a blog post on 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 one of those habitats. So uh, that's uh, I I want really big structures. I I want wide open spaces. So I'm just wondering, can could we daisy chain those inside a uh, a lava tube so that we have lots of space rather than just you know a small <laughs> confined uh, habitat right. space? I mean. They're, they're actually larger than, 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 you know, the, the typical one, but they're not big enough for me. Right. I understand that. And, and actually with a lava tube, uh, the idea potentially would be that you would take a lava tube and then close off the, the two ends and pressurize the whole lava tube. So that would be the space that you would have, which would be pretty, pretty huge. Uh, and you would not need to have pressurized structures within the lava tube because a lava tube itself will be pressurized. So you can build just standard structures inside the lava tube and have a very large volume that would be, you know, for humans would be very, very um, beneficial psychologically and just have a lot of space and would simplify any sort of construction within. But the key would be that you can close off one end, the deep end, and then the, the end next to the, the opening to the surface uh, and then pressurize it. So that would take some technology at this point. So how would you close off the end? Would you use an inflatable structure? You might, yeah. Or Actually, on, on Earth, when they build tunnels, uh, they have they have uh, inflatable membranes. That's not the same scale as a lava tube, but some of the technology already exists where you can close off large volumes. Uh, so we would have to see how that would work for a lava tube, which could be, you know, hundreds of feet in diameter, uh, if not larger. So the, the question is, what part of the lava tube do you really want to close off? And it probably would be incremental, uh, depending on our needs. We wouldn't want to close off, you know, miles of a lava tube without already being there in, in the thousands of people. Um, so that's something that, uh, that the technology would evolve for the, for the lunar surface, the, the ability to pressurize such large volumes and then also to, to assess the, uh, structural stability of the lava tube itself which would obviously be a prerequisite for using a lava tube. Are there people working on uh, processing regolith uh, to, to make it safer to handle uh, so that we can, um, you know, feed it into these um, processes where they're, um, they're, they're making useful materials out of regolith? Yeah, there is a lot of research on regolith from all perspectives. One is as a material from which we can extract uh, the elements, the component elements, uh, more research on using it as a feedstock for various 3D printers, uh, as well as, uh, I mean, even using regolith to try to uh, store uh, thermal energy. As you know, on the moon, you have two weeks of, of nighttime. So during that time, you're, you're reliant on either nuclear power or power stored during the two weeks of daylight from the solar power. Uh, so the solar power would have to be stored and in ground 
uh, storage is is one uh, one idea to store some of that, like like a thermal capacitor almost. And then there's the uh, the research that's being done on making it safer for handling and for making um, our uh, our machines and, and our suits and uh, ourselves more impervious to uh, to it. It's carcinogenic effect. So so basically shielding against it is the other kind of research that's being done. So there's a lot of research across the board because the regolith is so important to us and is also potentially dangerous to us. Well, good. And uh, th- thanks for coming on the show. I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And, yeah, thanks. Uh, I'll get off and see if someone else wants to call in, David. Thank you, John. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Uh, listeners, I've got an email to read. And uh, the toll-free line is available, and uh, we're at the 90-minute mark. But if you hurry up and give us a call, and uh, we will take your call. Adrian in San Diego says, Heim, uh, the Starliner CST-100 capsule flight, considering their track record uh, on their previous unmanned flights, he's talking about Boeing. So I'll start over. Boeing's Boeing Starliner CST-100 capsule flight, and um, considering their track record on their previous unmanned flights and recent 737 MAX quality control issues, would you even get in it? Just asking. Uh, well, I probably would if they invited me, I think, <laughs> but, it's, it, but, it, but it's risky. And I think, I think Boeing, like many other large multinational companies, um, have outsourced so much to many countries. And I read an article where one of the Boeing issues has been maintaining quality control across hundreds of companies and uh, many, many countries. So I think that's something that um, that needs to be addressed as an issue. So I think that's, that seems to be where some of Boeing's problems have happened. But um, Yeah, parts, uh, of their, know, parts of their wing are made in Malaysia, I just read. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. Uh, you know, put together all over the world. So There are issues. There are issues that um, Boeing has to contend with, not only Boeing probably, with um, just maintaining quality control across multiple companies in multiple countries. Um, let's see who uh, is calling you. Um, good evening. Good afternoon, caller. Welcome to the show. Who are you? Where are you, please? Uh, Sherry Bell in Las Vegas. Hi, Sherry. How are you? Hi, Sherry. Good. Hi. Um, it's been a long time since I talked to you, so really I just called to say hello. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, it's been a while, but uh, I know that you're still uh, pushing hard on all these uh, all these issues, and you're you're you have a, a symposium, I believe, coming up. Yeah, you know, I don't want to, 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 to you know use your time from to, to to encourage my or to talk about my thing, but I will just for a second. I want to do the living in space track this year, and I'm going to try to focus on what. In your specific area of expertise, what do you think AI is going to contribute? So, what you know, um, be completely imaginative, you know. Right. Um, I certainly think that AI you, uh, can be a, a, a major force for assisting researchers in, in all the disciplines. So, I think that's sort of the, the big thing initially. You know, being able to right. uh, look at a lot of data and extract information that humans really can't do very easily. Right, right. Are you interested? Because if you are, I'll send you an invitation. 
Yes, go, Chaim. Go, 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 go. Well, send <laughs> yeah, me go with LA. I, I, I can't <laughs> promise right now, but I definitely will consider it. How's that? Go, go, go. I'll, How's that? I'll, I'll even give you body armor to go to LA. So. <laughs> <laughs> it would be fun to see you again and interesting to hear what you come up with, you know? Thanks. Thanks. You definitely let me know. Uh, the details. I, I will be there, okay. and it'd be fun to get together with you guys again. So, yeah, it would be. It'd be great. So, okay. So, all right. Then. All right. Okay. Sounds great. Anything uh, else, Sherry, or is that it? No, that was it. Everybody else covered pretty much everything I was thinking. So, my I just I waited till the last. I was going to say that everybody else was like so on top of things. So I'm like, okay, that's wonderful. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Sherry, Thanks, for your Sharon. call. Bye bye. Okay. Bye. Uh, you have another email. I think, yeah, it says for you. So this came in from the blog. Oh, it's from uh, John. Uh, here's a post that Haim and I collaborated on regarding hybrid inflatable habitats, habitats and that's from a while back. Um, okay. Okay, you have another this is not call toward the end of the show. Uh, good, eve- good afternoon, caller. Who are you and where are you, please? Whoa. What? This is Dr. Dr. Okay, go ahead, Doug. You, you calm down your phone. That's good. Okay, yeah, this is Doug from Redlands, California. Go for it. Hi, I just want to give you a little, you mentioned about um, inflatables uh, before. I just want to give you a little data point. Um, should the uh, the Starship and the, and the Starship fleet, uh, you know, become operational and can refuel uh, and could send the entire, you know, anywhere from 100 to 250 is what they're, uh, predicting tons, you know, departing from LEO to the lunar surface. Um, I've done some calculations using some um, uh, kilograms per meter square for the different layers of inflatables that I got from NASA, and uh, I did the calculations of what sort of footprint could you have if you delivered a, you know, sort of a, a unitary, you know, a singular uh, inflatable habitat uh, to the moon. And if you launched all layers together, it would be just right at, at about one acre footprint. You could uh, fit within 100 tons. Obviously, for if it, they got up to as much as 250 ton payloads, then that would be, uh, you know, two and a half acres. Um, but if you were to launch uh, the layers separately, then by my calculations, it would be between eight and nine acre footprint that you could deliver you know, layer by layer uh, on the Starship. So I, I think inflatables have a real uh, potential future, both on the Moon and Mars. Uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, thanks Thanks for the information. That, that's an interesting uh, set of data points. Yeah, yeah. And, in fact, I could probably email you my, my calculations. Sure. I'd be right. to look at it. I appreciate that. Sure thing. Take care. Okay, thanks, Doug. Thanks, Doug. Um, listeners, we're going to wind the program down uh, as we move toward two hours. Uh, so seriously, if you want to talk with uh, Haim and, and ask a question, do it real quickly. And uh, our phone number, one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three, is still available. And email is still available. What is the biggest um, attraction uh in all of these subjects that we've talked about in your engineering classes, what, what do students like to focus on, work on, talk on? Do they, do they want to do habitats on the moon? Do they want to do something else? Where do you think their interest 
uh, seems to go for the most part. Right. So I have, I have like several now that are undergraduates that are working with me. Um, one is interested in lava tubes. One uh, who's just starting is interested in 3D printing. Um, and, and the others are sort of more habitat oriented, just trying to get a handle on, on what the issues are and uh, what the latest concepts are for, for habitat. So it runs across the board. Uh, some of it is more from the materials perspective and the construction perspective. But um, usually when a student starts working with me, they, they go through a semester or two of just a lot of reading so that they really have a handle on all the different aspects. I make sure that they appreciate the, the biology aspects, that they, you know, they realize that, you know, us engineers can only go so far unless some of the biological issues are, are resolved. Uh, but um, there's more and more interest in, interest in 3D printing these days from the students because they see in their classes and we have labs that have 3D printers, so they, they appreciate the, what those can do. Do they want to go into a graduate school for space-related affairs or are they headed elsewhere? Uh, it's actually both. You know, I've had really good students who, um, right out of a bachelor's, they go, they try, they want to go work for an aerospace company. Um, many, you know, we have a five-year master's program, so some students will stay another year and do a project that's specialized related to space. Uh, we've had graduates going to all, all the space companies uh, uh, and Boeing. Um, I have a PhD student that went to work for Boeing. I have students who went for, to Blue Origin, to SpaceX, uh, to other uh, aerospace companies, so um, our, we, we have a mechanical and, and aerospace degrees, and the aerospace degree at Rutgers is only about uh, three, four years old, maybe five years old, and uh, it's gotten almost as big as the mechanical program as far as student interest. So there's a lot of a lot of student interest in aerospace generally, some more aviation, some more space, but you know I think there's a, a broad interest in that in that general area. Do any of them talk about space tourism, space settlement, want to focus on engineering for tourists or for settlement? Does that come up? Um, not really, not space tourism. Um, I would say maybe settlement, you know, how do we get the, the most people up there as fast as possible? I think part of the learning process for them, and, and, you know, they're all of their late teens, early 20s, right? So. From their point of view, they're looking at another what, 40, 50 years of a career. So as they learn, you know, they, they realize that they could actually see a lot of this happen. So I think they're very excited about that. So I try to keep them excited while also keeping them grounded in, in some of the realities. Um, terrific. Um, anything else you you want to bring up that you thought you might get asked but nobody asked you? Um, I think I have you know, a lot of good, really good questions. You know, the regolith is a big issue. The Moji environment for humans is a big issue. And then uh, just um, sort of a, a little bit of a, the all the competition going on. There are no questions about China. I think you mentioned China, or uh-huh. one of your callers mentioned China. So I think I think that's going to be a big issue because they're they're going to keep push, pushing. Uh, I'm not sure how how their economy is faring. I keep reading that they're having a lot of problems, and they, they're actually undergoing a little bit of a deflation there in their economy. So, um, but I think they're motivated enough to really keep the space pro- their space program gro- growing. You know, they have a lot of pride in their technology, and they want to they want to be able to put people on the moon like we did. So, 
Um, we'll see. You know, we'll see how how much uh, the U.S. responds to that kind of challenge. You know, from a potential adversary, right? And so that's sort of a big open question. One last question from Adrian in San Diego. Uh, I wonder if Dr. B would care to speculate as to just how big a rocket would be possible to build to launch from the Earth's surface. Uh, what's, what's the largest rocket we could launch from the Earth's surface? Do you want to speculate on that? Well, I would say I would say the the the, the SpaceX large rocket is probably the where we are now with the technology. Um, I think uh, I, don't, I haven't really thought about theoretical limits on rocket size. Um, I think there are probably challenges if they're too big from just the launch phase through the atmosphere. There are probably issues that come up from uh, the, the, the the turbulence, the, the thermal, the size of the uh, rockets themselves, um, which is another specialty in its own right. So I have to believe that there are sort of um, technical limitations on our current technology. Um, but I think that um, that might not be the biggest issue for us as far as how much mass we get into space. I think the reusability is probably an important issue, and we see some of that technology being developed now as well. So, But an interesting question, though. Well, I know sound would be a big issue, and we saw That's the effect of not point. dampening that. Uh, That's right. And, and uh, so... Uh, where you could go acoustically uh, without some kind of super-duper dampening. Right. And the other issue I would say is that um, the, the just the, the risk, the, the the economic risk, right, if you have something that's very large and it's carrying a tremendous amount of things into space, what happens if it um, if, if, if that launch explodes, right? The, the economic losses, the insurance costs, it might be a point of diminishing return as far as the amount you can bring into space and whether it's insurable and whether the, the loss would be, would be uh, worth the risk. You have one more question. Uh, listeners, Tim's in Huntsville, who always seems to get the last 11th hour question in. This will be the last question of the day. Tim says, uh, has there been any recent development in using nuclear reactors to produce electricity? when solar power is impractical? There is. I mean, in reality, there's been a lot of work on, on space so space uh, nuclear power. Uh, you know, our early satellites, uh, spacecraft that went to the outer solar system all had nuclear thermal rocket, thermal uh, power plants. Uh, and there is uh, research on, on those for, for the lunar surface as well. So I think uh, I think that is evolving. And there are political challenges, as we know, with nuclear power. But I think the realities of uh, operating on the moon, eventually on Mars, where you can't count on solar power 100 uh, percent, will make uh, will make that development go even faster as we, as we move forward. You think we'll see fusion playing a role down the road, or is it still too far off in the future? Um, I think the engineering is is still a way off, but there, there has been progress. Uh, and I think again, it's that time scale. You know, when will we see it? Yeah, probably, I would say before the end of the century, we'll definitely see it. That's a long time away. I know. Well, you and I won't see it, but it'll be there. <laughs> well, Maybe you your know. younger listeners will see it. You don't know. We may see it from above or below, <laughs> wherever we may be. <laughs> wherever we may be. That's right. Uh, anything else you want to comment on? And uh, no, I, I think uh, you know. I think it's still one of the exciting uh, uh, activities of human of human beings. You know, uh, space research. I, I, I hope that 
we keep seeing young people getting involved. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, at Rutgers we, we see many, many people. We have, uh, space, uh, space groups, you know, students building rockets, they're building CubeSats, uh, they're building weather balloons. So there's a, there's a very large interest base amongst, uh, undergraduates. And I'm sure that's true of many universities. And that's sort of an exciting prospect and a hopeful prospect. Okay. Time, I, I want to thank you very much for tuning in. And remember, listeners, we are listener-supported radio. So if you have yet to support us as part of our campaign last year, uh, we still need your support and would welcome it. Uh, look in the upper right corner for the PayPal button and the information. Or you can email me at drspace at the space show. Dot com. I want to thank Heim for being with us, and again, I apologize for the starting delay, and hopefully we will get these problems resolved before Tuesday evening. And uh, for the rest of the weekend, enjoy it. Stay safe. Everybody keep looking up. Goodbye for Heim, David, and the space show. And Heim, I will call you uh, on your cell phone in a minute. Okay. Thank you. Thank, thank you, everybody. All. Goodbye. Bye-bye.